Preaching about heaven, is it just some kind of crazy dream? Or is it a reality and a certain promise? I don't know. I just can't get over these words every time I read them. John is speaking here. and Look what he says, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. And notice these next words. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. Thank you, Lord. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What a promise. What a hope. We spent several weeks now looking at trying to examine what heaven will be like. And I'm convinced the half has not been told. We began last week looking at the New Jerusalem, and again, verse, the first two verses talk, talks about that. John said, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first world passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, it's interesting to me, and through the years we've tried to dissect what John is saying. Is it literal? Is it real? But whatever it was, it was real to John. It was a vision like no other. But the bottom line, he's talking about in this text, and we've spent a lot of time last week, we won't do so much tonight. This is the new home of God. Heaven coming down. Verse 3, Revelation 21. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. How many know we have never experienced anything like that in this world? Not us. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine, as far as I might try, what it's going to be like when God is going to make his home among his people. A time that God says, the Bible says, that God himself is going to be with us. I mentioned last week, and I made the comment, there's no place like home. How many would agree with that? Amen. But how many know we're not home yet? This world is not our home. We are just passing through. I made reference last week to Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23. We're not going to do that again tonight as far as read it. But the longer I live, the more aware I become of the fact that this world is not my home. It is not my home. And Paul reminded us in Romans chapter 8 that you and I, along with the rest of creation, we live a life of suffering, heartache, and pain. But Paul says, and the Word of God promises us, that both creation and us, in the future, we will be glorified. And I am so thankful that our God has given us a sure hope. Because one of these days, one of these days, this frustration is going to end. And one of these days, creation is going to experience freedom from sin, freedom from evil, Freedom from decay and freedom from death. But until then we groan. We groan for our own release. A release from the cycle of sin and decay. And we long for the full redemption of our bodies in the resurrection. I am so glad I have the word of God. Amen. So glad for the word of God. And Paul reminds us, as we go through this process of groaning, we are not alone. Because Paul said the Spirit of God groans with us. And we don't have, when we don't have the words to say, he expresses the words that we cannot say to share our longing to God. But until the time of our release, until then, until the time of a redemption, we groan, we wait, and we hope. But we have to remember, we're not home yet. There's an ache in all of us for love, peace, an ache for God's presence. And I thank the Lord for the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us soothe that ache. But my friend, one day in heaven, we're going to be home. Finally home. I thought about our text tonight that I read, first seven verses of Revelation 21. And I can't think of hardly anything that would better capture the anticipation of seeing Christ 
face-to-face than a wedding. Now remember I told you about the words what John said there in verse 2. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I read an article from Table Talk magazine, and a lot of what I'm going to share tonight comes from that, but I thought, wow, what a good thought to think about a wedding. Now, I've told you before, I really don't like doing weddings. Too much hassle, uh, too much aggravation sometimes, and I'll do them, I don't mean that. Uh, sometimes you'll find the bride's mother causing trouble because she wants her daughter to have the wedding she never had or whatever. And I always tell the bride to be, do what you want to. It's your wedding. But think about the wedding. And a lot of times, the weddings we've had here at our church, uh, the groom will be off in the back somewhere, you know, getting ready to go. And the bride will be in the nursery. And she's got four or five ladies back there all giggling and they're all fussing around, fixing her hair, making sure the dress is just right. And everything is just perfect. And John said, bear with me for a minute. John said, I saw God coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. All the fuss in the nursery getting ready, where they do it at. But once that bride enters those doors, She stopped looking at her dress. She's not looking at her hair. And no matter how beautiful that dress might be, she never walks down the aisle gazing at her gown. Her focus looks ahead and focus on her soon-to-be husband. Her eyes are fixed on her husband. And I want to tell you, folks, that's how we have to live our life today. Our eyes have got to be fixed on our husband. We are the bride of Christ. And I want you to realize, and I have no idea how to explain it, but we're going to spend the next few weeks trying to at least scratch the surface, Lord willing. But as stunning as heaven is going to be, and it will be stunning, what makes it marvelous is that one day I will get to see my Savior's face. My eyes will be on him 
my focus will be on him. And without a doubt, without a doubt, the church, the bride of Christ, will be with Jesus, our groom. And you can write this down. We are going to live happily ever after. Our focus will be on him. I don't normally do a lot of, read a lot of poetry in our messages, but a lady wrote this poem a couple hundred years ago. Her name was Annie Cousin. And here's what she wrote, one stanza of it. The bright eyes, not her garment, but her near, dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the king of grace. Not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Our eyes will be upon him. So as I think about our life here on this side of eternity, for the Christian life, it's like an engagement. We have been betrothed to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a life that we live in anticipation of that wedding day. And as Christians, we are living between the already of our engagement to Christ and the not yet of the wedding feast of the Lamb, but it's coming. And just like we shared the illustration of a bride for a wedding, we're to be like a bride-to-be. We're to take every occasion to prepare for life with our beloved and eternity with Jesus. And as we live with the expectation of seeing Jesus Christ face to face with our eyes in heaven, my friend, that ought to affect the way we live in the here and now. Now I realize our world is a fallen world and you know we preach about a lot of things going on in our world, but the truth is our world's been bad since the fall. That's right. It has been. But for those who Appreciate the good things of life. For the eagerness that are felt by engaged couples, we see a picture of a fundamental desire of all people. A longing for eternity. We're not going to turn there tonight. But how many find Ecclesiastes a little bit hard to read sometimes? A little depressing sometimes. 
written by the wisest man who ever lived, I mean, of course, other than Jesus, yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Solomon realized, especially in chapter 3, that we all have that fundamental desire and we share a longing for eternity. If you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, you know Solomon asked a lot of questions, hard questions. He asked in chapter 3, verse 9, what do you get from your toil? What good is all the work that we do? He admits he's seen the bids that God has given man to do on this earth. But he also realizes in the midst of futility of many things, Solomon realized that God has made everything beautiful in his time. And by his own confession, Solomon says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And no matter how hard we might try, and Solomon tried, we can never find out what God has done from beginning to the end. What a statement. God has made everything beautiful in his time. One commentator calls this verse the greatest statement of divine providence in all the scriptures. Divine providence. God has made everything beautiful. In its time. Now, what makes that so startling to us, and I think you would agree that a lot that goes on in this life is far from beautiful. And Solomon doesn't have his head in the sand, he isn't un- unaware of how awful this world can be <clears throat> and how. Sin pervades the world he lives in. And I think he knew of the curse God pronounced in Eden. And his question is based upon that curse when he asked, what gain do we have from our toil? What gain do we have? And we look at that and we think, well, it's a rhetorical question, but I want to tell you it's more than that. It's more than that. And you think about Solomon, his wealth, his wisdom, his accomplishments. And Solomon is not speaking theoretically. He had witnessed firsthand. And Solomon admits that he's seen the business that God has given us to be busy with. Now, make no mistake about it, the Bible does affirm the dignity of work. 
Before sin came into the garden, God had commanded Adam and Eve to do their duties, and God promised them of being fruitful. But then came the fall. And now, because of the fall, after the fall, work became a burden. And Adam and Eve would no longer do their task in the lust surroundings of the garden. But now they would do it, and we do it, in a world filled with thorns, thistles, failures, and frustrations. Solomon earlier declared in Ecclesiastes 2, he said, work is a vexation of the heart. But remember, God has made everything beautiful in his time. So whenever we face hardships in our careers, when we see injustice in our world and in our workplace, when we fail to complete assignments, we're reminded of the painful truth, and hear me well, that a fallen world will never yield lasting gain. It cannot happen. And when I think about this, and I see it played out in the unsaved, especially my dad, when I try to witness to him, when will we realize with all the dissatisfaction we have with our vocations, it has to remind us that we are made for something greater than our jobs can offer us, something greater than our hobbies can offer us, something Greater than our careers can offer. God has something better for us. As Solomon said, but there's hope. Even in a broken world. Because again, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Solomon stated earlier in verse 1, everything for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And the only way to illuminate our understanding of life is to realize that we live our lives under the careful watch of a sovereign God. He's watching and he cares. So as we consider his providence, we learn there's a time for birth, a time for death, a time for planning, a time for gathering, a time for mourning, 
time for dancing, a time for war, and a time for peace. And I've got to tell you, there's some things in that list I don't particularly like. And one day they'll be gone. But I have to remind myself, over every one of those things, God is in control. He is in control. And the only way we'll see the beauty in that is when we discover that our God orchestrates every last detail according to his perfect design. Not mine, but his. Everything is good in its time. Somebody said that that verse, Ecclesiastes 3.11, is a Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Think about that. Everything is good in its time. Most of us have memorized at least the, the gist of Romans 8.28. And as we know that certainly all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, again, you hear me say it often, but we need to remind ourselves, it didn't say everything was good. It said everything worked together for the good. And the good that Paul is talking about is that one day, one day, we will be completely conformed into the likeness of Christ. That's God's purpose in our life. And as children of God, as we experience the seasons of life, we can find comfort in knowing that our God's in control and our God uses every circumstance in our lives, to shape us more and more into the image of His Son. God has set eternity in our hearts. So the Bible talks about the best things and the worst things. And the Bible says, by the overruling hand of the great God, the God who is sovereign, the best and the worst, work together for our good and for his glory. We've lived long, long enough to know that this world is filled with heartache. But somehow, in some way, our God beautifully uses the joys of life and the sorrows to transform us into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. So everything is good in its time. But we're talking about heaven tonight. How many know that heaven's forever? And Solomon also told us in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in our hearts. 
Augustine wrote these words. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Isn't it true? Our heart is restless until it rests in you. We are created with a knowledge of God and a longing for eternity. And Solomon tries to balance the scale here a little bit. He does emphasize the futility of life under the sun. But he also pushes us to recognize our innate awareness of eternity. God has placed eternity in our hearts. Solomon also understood somewhat of the ways of God. He understood that God gave man work as a gift. He understood that God makes everything beautiful in his time. And he also understood that God has placed eternity in our hearts. That God's purposes are inscrutable. And that God's plans endure forever. And that God will one day judge the righteous and the wicked. So what do we learn? What does Solomon know? He knows that God's ways are beautiful. Even when we don't understand. He knows that God's ways are incomprehensible. And he also knows they're eternal. Solomon was right, no matter how much we search and try. We will never fully understand what God has done from the beginning to the end. But please understand that God has given us a capacity to learn that history has a purpose. We may not understand it all, but God has a a purpose. And as we realize how finite we are, it ought to increase our dependence on our great God and Savior. We need Him. And so we're preaching about heaven, and I want to say tonight, we need to live our lives from the vantage point of eternity. Amen. We preached a bit bit about sin this morning, and sin distorts our perspective. We no longer treat work as a gift from God. 
a lot of people have taken that gift from God and they now use it for a platform to become great, for personal greatness. Time is not seen as something beautiful that should be redeemed, but we see time as, without consequence, something to be wasted. We live in a world that has a wrong perspective because of sin. And history is understood not as the arena of God's providential rule, but as a playground for the powerful to prey on the weak. Now remember, we did a series in Daniel several years ago, and we reminded it's not history, it's his story. It is his story. We're living in a world, for the most part, that eternal life is not to be desired, but mocked by those who only live for now. And Ecclesiastes reminds us that kind of fatalism has no value. We are made to know God. There's an emptiness in everybody's life and in their heart that only God can fill. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And nothing apart from eternity with God will satisfy our deepest longings. Oh, I want to see Him. The good news tonight, folks, Jesus provided a way, a way that simple people could dwell in the presence of God forever. Peter told us that Jesus suffered one time for our sins. Thank God for that. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous. You know why he did it? That he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. So is heaven a far-fetched dream? Absolutely not. This is the eternal hope we live for. We are pilgrims traveling from this world to the next. And my prayer would be that every morning we would wake up Eagerly waiting the return of our king. And by the way, that's one reason I like Sundays. It's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of eternity. The rest of the week we may go around our, our, our time, punching our time clock. But understand, do that knowing that no matter what you do, Even our labors are being used by God to prepare us for Emmanuel's land. Eternity with God. And do you know tonight, we're thinking about heaven, we're preaching about heaven, but the only way 
will ever see Christ by sight in heaven, we have to first see him by faith here on earth. Amen. And what a privilege it's going to be that day when we see him in heaven. But how many know that right here on this earth we can see him with faith? And how wonderful it is to sense his presence with us. And what a privilege it is to read his word and to converse with him in prayer and meditate upon the good things of God. And I, and I realize we don't really know what he looks like. But one of these days, we're going to see him in heaven. And it will be the purest, loveliest, most humbling moment of our existence. And we will fall down and worship him. Do you realize there'll be a time, there'll be a day... When I will hear him say my name. Think about that. And I will hear his voice in a way I've never heard it before. And I don't know for sure, but I think it's going to blow me away. Face to face in glory with God. Can you sense it? The anticipation that one of these days... I can hold his hand. I will bow in his presence. And I will spend eternity praising God with you. And I and other believers. And when I realize that, I draw strength and hope every day of my life. In Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43, you know the verse. This is a thief on the cross. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, can you hear the cry of his heart here? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I think we can draw a conclusion here. We don't know the thief's name, but you know what he knew? His time when this earth was running out. And I don't, I don't know if you ever thought about it before, but he realized he faced eternity. And he knew he needed help. He needed hope. And he didn't know any fancy prayer. He'd never been to Sunday school. Don't know, you know. Sure, he maybe went to synagogue. But he was lost. And he knew he was about to step out in eternity. And he cries out, Lord, remember me. So he knew enough about God to know he had a kingdom. And Jesus said to him, don't worry. Today you'll be with me 
in paradise. And folks, that's forever. That's eternity. And in this world, our lives are wrapped up in time, seasons of the year, work hours, getting older, children growing. And for most of us, if we were asked what we wish we had more of, many would say we need more time. But the bottom line is God has placed eternity in our hearts. And we have desires and hopes what might happen here on earth in our lifetime. But we also realize we know that God never intended for us to live here forever. I was thinking this afternoon, I can't put a finger on the time of my life when I began to think about what eternity meant. When I began to realize that after I leave this world, there would be a never-ending period called eternity. But I know that some time ago, I came to the conclusion, since I'm going to spend eternity somewhere, I want it to be with God. Forever and ever. And church, we need to have that kind of mindset now. So we can live in the moment. That one day. Live in the moment with no regrets. Because we are blessed to know that one day. We will spend eternity in heaven. It's not a far-fetched dream. It is a sure hope. Let's stand together. How many are glad you're going to heaven tonight? How many are glad for God's word? Amen. The promises we have, the surety we have, the assurance of salvation. Father, thank you tonight for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you, Lord, for placing eternity in our hearts and give us that hope beyond this world to know that we will spend forever with you. Thank you for being our God. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. We pray, amen.